All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this honor of gathering together as family on a Sunday morning, Father, a morning that you've ordained from eternity past to your glory. Father, thank you for a divine unity that you've provided for this congregation. Thank you for imparting it to our individual souls as well. And thank you for giving us the faculties to be able to appreciate it in time. Father, thank you also for the completed canon of Scripture, for we depend wholly upon it. Thank you for always guiding our hearts back to it. And thank you for your patience, your grace, your mercy, and most of all, your love as we stumble about imperfectly, Father. We pray for those in our congregation, Father, that can't be with us here this morning, that are ill, but desire to be here with us. We want them to know that we're with them in spirit. Father, we also pray for those that are still lost in this world, that before it's too late, we are able to evangelize them and that they are able to come to the full knowledge of you through your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, it's for this that we are most grateful and thankful, your Son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, fantastic series that we've been on. God sees the heart, but the world sees the choices we make. Uh, this is part eight. Uh, it's a continuation from a couple of weeks back. I did uh, continue with part seven on Thursday, uh, but without the previous six uh, lessons or messages, you'd be uh, remiss. This morning's message brings a lot of moving parts together, so please put on your concentration caps. Uh, I'm going to do the best I can for you as uh, your teacher, but um, there's just a lot of moving parts, and you're just going to have to really concentrate on bringing them together. On Thursday, we spent our time reviewing We Are Nothing More Than Vessels of Mercy. That was a five-part series that Scott had taught uh, in my absence, and we wove that into the previous six parts of this series titled God Sees the Heart, But the World Sees the Choices We Make. We took our time on Thursday, uh, and for good cause, because these are really big topics that we've, been ta that we've been pondering, really big topics. For example, one of the key principles from the series, We Are Nothing More Than Vessels of Mercy, was this up here on the board. We should appreciate God's mercy for us, not test it. Those are sort of diametrically opposed approaches to the grace of God, even the love of God. We should appreciate God's mercy for us, not put it to the test. And frankly, I'm not sure I did a good enough job on Thursday explaining this. Um, so let me try again uh, what the Spirit was saying, I believe. Um, here goes. It's the old push-pull situation we've come across over the years. Um, in other words, there are two different ways to approach something. You can be pulled to it or you can be pushed towards it. Um, there are two ways to move from point A to point B. That's the point. You can either be pulled towards 
an end goal by something attractive. In other words, um, love. I love God. I draw near to Him. He draws me by means of this channel, if you would. So you can be pulled towards an end goal by something attractive, or you can be pushed towards it by something with superior force acting behind you. A quick example is when you were a kid, you were either pulled by the righteousness of cleaning your room, or you were pushed by the threat of punishment for not doing so. Both situations, the end goal is the same, but it matters how you got there. And so there's always this sort of dichotomy, this push-pull paradigm, if you would, and that's what uh, the nature of it is. So back to the spiritual point on the board, we should appreciate God's mercy for us, not test it. In a pull scenario, our perspective on mercy is good, as we've studied. Therefore, our motivation is good. How are we motivated with the knowledge of God's mercy in our lives? So in a pull scenario, our perspective is good. Therefore, our motivation is good. And when this is true, we are pulled towards the attractiveness of God's mercy. And we appreciate Him drawing us to Himself this way. We appreciate. In a pull mechanism, it's about appreciation. We're drawn to Him. And so we appreciate that He is drawing us to Himself in this way. We remember that this is how He saved us in the first place. John 6.44 up here on the board, part A, says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So even from the get-go, at salvation proper, we appreciate that He drew us to Him. There was an attractiveness, if you would. So in a pull situation... God's mercy becomes a great source of gratitude. As per Holy Scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In other words, God wants you to, to maintain a pull method in your life. He wants you to be drawn to Him. Uh, he may have to discipline you, He may kick you in the the rump, so to speak, (laughs) and push you from time to time. But his desire is that you're pulled by the attractiveness of him, by his love. So this is in everything, give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, a.k.a. to be pulled or drawn to him. That's the healthy scenario regarding our perspective on God's mercy. Now, the other option is the push scenario where we are pushed into realizing God's mercy for us. Now, this takes a little thinking. We are pushed into realizing God's mercy for us. Instead of being drawn to Him, we are pushed by inescapable conclusions, let's call them. We are pushed by inescapable conclusions that He loves us so much that He rescues us from our own ridiculousness. But we're pushed, you see, It's sort of like the disgruntled teenager after they exhaust all possible reasons to complain about something. Ultimately, they have to concede that their parents really do love them. Ultimately, they have to concede that their parents really do 
love them. In other words, they're pushed into that conclusion. This person is the one who puts God's mercy to the test as a way of life. As a way of life. Instead of trusting in the Lord with a good perspective, they want God to prove himself to them over and over again. And so they put his mercy to the test. Instead of just showing gratitude and being drawn to him with good perspective, they constantly, habitually put his mercy to the test as if he has to prove himself to them over and over again. It's a negative posture rather than a positive one. And frankly, it's a waste of God-given time on this earth to be pushed into realizing God's grace and mercy in your life. The point the Spirit's making, again, up here on the board. It's very simple. We should appreciate God's mercy for us, not test it. So this simply means that God wants us to enjoy His mercy as grace, as an expression of His love. That's His desire. We just read that. Be thankful for everything. That's God's desire for you in Christ Jesus. Be grateful. So it means that God wants us to enjoy His mercy as grace, as an expression of His love. As is the case with all aspects of love, it is meant to be embraced and appreciated, not put to the test every chance we get. Not put to the test every chance we get. The latter approach is dysfunctional by nature. If you spend the vast majority of your time with your opportunity to fellowship with God in a good way by being dysfunctional, by putting Him to the test, we call that dysfunction. And it sort of ruins the purity of God's love by muddying it with doubt. The last thing God wants is for you to doubt His love for you. I mean, didn't He prove it? On the cross? Isn't that sufficient? For God so loved the world? So the last thing He wants you to do is doubt His love for you. And as I've taught you in the past, as we've seen in Holy Scripture in the past, doubt is a close relative of fear. Doubt is a close relative of fear. And as we've studied, fear and love are like oil and water. They don't mix. Fear and love are like oil and water. Go to 1 John 4.18. 1 John 4.18. I want to point something out to you. This is something that, um, you know, between messages he has me think about. In this case, it was over the weekend. Uh, just wondering about, you know, what he's going to say from the pulpit on a morning like this. So I started thinking about fear and love this way and how they're opposed to one another. And of course, we have to go to this verse, 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected or matured in love. So to whatever degree you lack a certain, let's call it spiritual maturity, to that degree you might be riddled with fear. You might have doubts about God's love for you, therefore doubts about His mercy, and you put it to the test, uh, even as a way of life, maybe. 
But as far as Holy Scripture, as far as true wisdom is concerned, there's no fear in love. So concentrate up here on the board. Mutual exclusion. Love is Christ's domain. When we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, a la Romans 13, 14, we are motivated by love. And don't forget where we just came from. When we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, we are motivated by love. Fear is the flesh's domain. When we put on the old self, compare Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, we are motivated by fear. We put on Christ, we're drawn to God and His mercy. We put on the old self, we have to be pushed. Kicking, dragging, screaming, doubting, because all we are is filled with fear at that point. And so that's the struggle in Romans 7, right? I don't do the things I want to do. I, I do the things I don't want to do. Where does that all originate from? Well, it's the distinction between love and fear. Let me see if I can tie this back to our previous point of development this morning, namely the point about pull versus push. Love is what pulls us towards righteousness. Fear is what pushes us towards righteousness, if at all. Love is what pulls us towards righteousness. Fear is what pushes us towards righteousness, if at all. God's preference is that we understand His love for us and, with good perspective, draw near to the throne of grace, also known as the throne of mercy, frankly. They're one and the same. God's preference is that we understand His love for us and, with good perspective, draw near to the throne of grace or mercy. This is what functional love does, right? We have a functional, operational Love, not a dysfunctional one. We have a functional love. That's what's in view. And that's what God wants for us, to have a functional love that draws to Him out of appreciation and gratitude and love itself. It's when we get dysfunctional because of bad perspective that we start losing sight of these things. So that's what functional love does. It abides in God's love. While he may choose to use something ungodly like fear to accomplish his own objectives, it is not his preference, strictly speaking. A good example is when one of you decides you're going to stop living in sin because you're afraid that God is going to discipline you harshly if you don't. That's fear that affects your motivation, does it not? Oh, man, he's got a pretty heavy hand. Eventually, the hammer's going to come down. That kind of fear affects your motivation. God would much rather, though, you understand that your sinning is a root cause of pain and therefore an affront to his love. He would much rather you have that perspective, not the adolescent childlike one that says, I don't want to get in trouble. The one that says, I want to be and bring glory to God. He would much rather you understand that your sinning is a root cause of pain and therefore an affront to His love. He'd rather you understand that His love wants to protect you 
from hurting yourself and others. And stop for that reason. For that reason. Not just because he might be forced to stop it for you. And we know in the worst case scenario, even for believers, that can be the sin unto death. He can take you out if you refuse to listen long enough. He might choose to take you out. You'll still go to heaven, but he may end your life at that point. Hopefully it never gets that far for any of us, but technically it could. Go to Hebrews 4.16. Hebrews 4, verse 16. Hebrews 4.16. Such is the essence of this particular verse. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive what? Mercy. He wants to draw us to himself. Let us draw near with confidence nonetheless. Why? Because mercy is the one that opens up the gate. If you doubt his love, if you doubt his grace, if you doubt his mercy, how confident are you going to be? Approaching the throne of grace. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Up here on the board, parousia, we've studied this in the past, with confidence means freedom, openness, especially in speech. Boldness, confidence implies proper perspective regarding God's desire for us to freely enjoy access to the one who loves us, who is merciful and gracious to us. So that's where perspective comes in. If you understand how much God loves you, you are free. You have the freedom to approach Him based on what He's told you about Himself in terms of grace, mercy, and even love. That's where the confidence comes from. That's what allows us to draw near to Him. And Satan doesn't want that. He wants you to be unsure. He wants you to say, oh man, I'm in such a bad state. I don't think I'm even going to pray to God right now. I'm in such a bad state, I don't think even God wants to hear what I have to say. Those are all lies. God, wants to, God already knows what's on your heart. He wants you to have a conversation with Him about everything. Just be open with Him. Be free, knowing that Jesus Christ already died for that sin that you're held in bondage to right now. And if that's the case, you should be free to approach the throne of grace. And that's what He wants. And that's why we appreciate Him the way we do. Because we have access to Him all the time. Again, all of that was instigated by this one statement. We should appreciate God's mercy for us, not test it. This led us to the following principle on Thursday, up here on the board, putting God's mercy to the test. This is one of the hallmarks of believer testing. While we can't be tempted to the point where we lose our salvation, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, 2 Peter 2, 9, we can be tempted to disregard God's mercy. Matthew 4, 6-7, up here on the board. 
I'll give you the amplified 2 Peter 2.9. Then, in light of the fact that all this is true, be sure that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and how to keep the unrighteous uh, under punishment until the day of judgment. So this is one of the hallmarks of believer testing, putting God's mercy to the test. We can't lose our salvation, but we certainly can lose sight of or disregard the extent of God's mercy. Go to Matthew 4, 6. As we noted in Matthew 4, Jesus resisted the devil's temptation to put God to the test by quoting Holy Scripture, and that's what we should do. If God says, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you, take it to the bank. If he says, I just want you to come to me, take it to the bank. If he says, I've already forgiven you, take it to the bank. If Jesus said, Tetelestai, it is finished, take it to the bank. It's done. There's no reason you shouldn't have free access to the throne of grace. Those are all lies. Matthew 4, 6, Satan said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Sometimes we do that stuff. I'm going to just prove... I'm going to make God prove that He has mercy on me by doing something ridiculous, by something harmful to myself or even others. Just so God can prove to Himself, prove to me once again that He's merciful. Well, that's wrong perspective. And that's the perspective that the devil wanted Jesus to adopt in the wilderness under great stress. But Jesus said what we should say. He cast Scripture at the situation. He put forth truth. That's how we resist the devil and he flees from us. Shortly after this, he flees, right? That's our prototype. We put forth the strength of the word and the devil flees from us. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Done. These are truly words of wisdom from the wellspring of wisdom itself. And as Holy Scripture counsels us up here on the board, James 1, 5 to 6, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Doesn't that just sound so simple? Can we just like shake it out? Can we just admit that sometimes we lack wisdom, and if we go to God, he'll give it to us? But what is the key? Well, let's continue. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. What's doubting a close relative of? Fear. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. There is no fear in love. These are mutually exclusive things. Hopefully you see the connective tissue there. He must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. So we have been asking the Spirit to point out what the Word has to say about our perspective on mercy. That's really been the gist of our messages lately. And even in the most practical ways, not just, you know, what does the doctrine say in the Word of God, but what does it mean for me? What does it mean for you in a practical way? Here's what he's given us so far. 
disengaging from God's mercy, this may be one of the most common things we believers do. We get the test and we fail. We're put under stress and we fail. So this may be one of the most common things we believers do. We disengage from God's mercy. When we disengage from our Lord's mercy, we relegate ourselves to the imperfect abilities of the flesh to deliver us from despair unto hope. There's nothing left. If we disengage from His mercy, we're left to our own devices, which are imperfect uh, and incapable of ever delivering us. And so we live a life of frustration and anything but peace. Hebrews 6.19 This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. Grace, mercy, love, they are the anchors. They are the hope that we have as an anchor of our souls. Remember this theme over the past years. God saves us daily. Remember, salvation is not to be thought of as a one-time event. That is a huge error that I believe most so-called Christians do. Well, I'm saved, so I'm good forever and ever, and uh, God's not even interested in saving me from anything anymore. I guess I'm left to my own devices now. He's going to go off and save other people. No. God saves us daily. And without mercy, this would be impossible. Without mercy, this would be impossible. So I was reflecting on this, and I invite you to do the same. Mercy takes a big hit when we lose sight of the fact that nothing we do in the flesh has any value in God's eyes. Mercy takes a big hit when we lose sight of the fact that nothing we do in the flesh has any value in God's eyes. Even if everyone on earth says differently. Even if you're the, you know, the cat's meow, the popular gal, the popular guy, the the rich gal, the rich guy, the beautiful gal, the handsome man, whatever it is that you are that this world seems to think so highly and esteem you so highly for, it's garbage. It doesn't matter what the world tells you. Um, so again, mercy takes a big hit when we lose sight of the fact that nothing we do in the flesh has any value in God's eyes. For example, I was talking to Sean, my son, the other day about the U.S. Navy. That's the branch of service that seems to interest him the most. I'm a little upset with this, but whatever. Being an Air Force guy. Still trying to, like, influence him. I'm doing, like, subliminal things at night. Like, Air Force. You know, he rolls around. <laughs> Anyways, we were talking about the Navy and how much the media loves Navy SEALs. The media loves these guys. In fact, if you're a SEAL and you can communicate, you can make tons of money selling your thoughts. There's a huge market for it. Supply and demand, right? There's not that many SEALs. Write a book. Go on a motivational speaker tour. You name it. Now, we have to take pause and put things into their right 
perspective here. Is it fantastic that we have SEALs carrying out super difficult missions on behalf of America? Absolutely. These guys are unbelievable. And I, for one, am truly grateful for their sacrifices. But here's my question. Is a SEAL a better counselor on life for the average person than, say, me? Who depends wholly on this, not me, you know what I'm saying. Is that guy a better counselor on life for the average person? It's an indictment upon mankind to see a SEAL get paid thousands of dollars and receive copious amounts of praise for giving a commencement speech at a college. All the while, I'm here at North Christian Church trying to get people to absorb true wisdom from the Word of God. And there are always empty seats. And nobody's paying me thousands last time I checked. For one speech. You see, man loves its heroes, but there's only one, Jesus Christ. Man loves his own righteous deeds, but they are all filthy rags. Man loves to idolize himself, but it's all a trap. Isaiah 64, 6, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. That's what the Bible has to say about our righteous deeds. All our righteous deeds appear on the board. This may come as a shock to a lot of Christians in this world, it's difficult to fathom that what man thinks is good is mere rubbish to the holy God of the universe. I mean, these guys, and I'm not picking on the seals, right? But things tend to bleed over. Are there certain goodnesses that are accomplished by these soldiers? Absolutely. But if Jesus Christ is nowhere in the picture... It's all garbage. There's no reason to necessarily hold it up. It's difficult to fathom that what man thinks is good is mere rubbish to the holy God of the universe. Why? Because man habitually uses the wrong standard of measure. And what does the Bible tell us about standards of measure? Proverbs 16:11, a just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are his concern. So the next time you hear a Navy SEAL or any special forces soldier give a motivational speech, see if they even mention Jesus Christ. All I hear is this is how you can become a wonderful person. This is how you can become a tremendous contributor to the world. If you're friends of the world, you're an enemy of God. So says Holy Scripture. The world will help its own. The world loves its own. Last time I checked, from Holy Scripture. Take it from me and my methods and apply this to your life. 
That is supplanting this. Do you see? That's the problem. So the next time you see any of these people give motivational speeches, see if they even mention Jesus Christ. See what exactly it is that they claim to have superior wisdom on. What is it that you're supposed to be telling me? You have wisdom for me? Because you can swim underwater long distances and blow up ships? How are you going to give me life lessons because you can do that? Do I appreciate it? Absolutely. But what do you have that I don't have? If you don't have this behind what you're telling me, if you don't have the Word of God behind every word that you're trying to impart into my soul, then shut up. Yeah, I say that without the seal here, right? Yeah. <laughs> shut up, you! <laughs> I, hope, I hope, even if there was a seal in here, I hope the person would know what I'm getting at. It's not about that person in their service. I, I love it. It's what we do. It's what we accept. It's when it bleeds over into the truth. I don't want life counsel from that person unless they're speaking from the truth. That's what I'm trying to say. What is it that they claim to have superior wisdom on? And see what presuppositions they want you to swallow in the absence of the true wisdom that is Christ. Am I discrediting anyone who's mastered their job? Not at all. Heck, for we believers, this is what the Bible says up here on the board. Colossians 3.23, Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men. We're supposed to work hard. If you're a soldier, if you're a seal, be the best darn seal you can possibly be. Truth be told. No discredit whatsoever. But let us not accept that as a substitute for true wisdom. As far as I can tell, there are plenty of believers in the ranks of the Navy SEALs. I read a whole book about one that gave all glory to God. Somehow he survived these unbelievable trials in war, and he gave all praise and glory to God the whole time. And I was like, amen. So I know that there are believers in these ranks. That's not what the Spirit's getting at here. What he's getting at is that man loves to misappropriate wisdom to those who are good and other noteworthy occupations. Why? Idolatry. Nothing else. Go to the last, literally the last verse in the first letter that John writes, the, the epistle. Children, guard yourself against idols. Literally the last thing he says in the whole book. After everything he says, children, guard yourself against idols. Why do you think he said that? The, the apostle John, the apostle of love. Isn't it obvious? Because that's what we do. We idolize everybody. And then once somebody becomes an idol, they become ubiquitous. Like, oh, they have ubiquitous wisdom. Tom Cruise, what the heck? What's wrong with you people? Why are you listening to him? You know, you know what I'm saying? Why are you listening to an actor? They can act. They're not, even doing, they're not even being themselves. What they're really good at is acting like somebody else. And they're famous for it. And you're going to listen to them on politics or religion? That's idolatry. That's the practical side of idolatry. It's grotesque. The reason for that little example up here on the board, God's scale of values, mercy takes a big hit when we lose sight of the fact that nothing we do in the flesh has any value in God's eyes, even if everyone on earth says differently. 
The need for mercy, here's the key point, the need for mercy is fleeting for those who think their deeds are righteous in the flesh. What do you need mercy for? If you're righteous. We call that self-righteousness. And you know what? God despises it. God despises it. Go to 1 Peter 5, 6. 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Self-righteousness. This is where we left off two weeks ago, by the way. In part 6, uh, the Spirit used that as the launching pad for our last series, the one that was tucked in between parts 6 and 7. Now we're approaching it again. The idea of self-righteousness and that God despises it. Why? Because if you're self-righteous, you don't even think you need mercy. You're already righteous. What do you need mercy for? And the Bible says those, that's your, your, all your righteousness, all your righteous deeds are filthy garments. 1 Peter 5, 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. I just alluded to this. Firm in your faith. Firm is from the Greek word stereos. It means solid, firm, referring to what is immovable, will not budge. I'm holding it up right now, by the way. This is the rock. This is the word. Hold on to that. It means solid, firm, referring to what is immovable. Isn't that what Jesus did? Even in his incarnation, didn't he put the word forth when the devil tried to tempt him to put God to the test? He put the immovable word in front, referring to what is immovable, will not budge, stable, not changeable, standing fast without buckling or giving way, steadfast. Our faith is in the rock. Deuteronomy 32, 18, not the movie star. 32.18, you neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. I was thinking about this now. Looking back on our lessons over the past um, few years even, so much of our lessons have been about one thing, perspective. That's the, I say this, I'll say it as a broken record. That's how long it takes to change your perspective. And when your perspective changes, things change that quickly as well. You can be looking at something from this perspective. Someone says, have you ever thought about it from this way? And all of a sudden, like, oh, my word, I used to hate that person. Now I love him. Oh, I used to hate that thing. Now I love it. I didn't know. No kidding. I didn't know about that thing, about this person or that situation. And then once I knew, once I had a better perspective on it, I was set free. I, I, I loved it. I understood it. It made sense to me. Perspective is everything. And so much of our lessons over the past few years have been on just that one thing. Get our perspective right. For example, to the principles we pondered at the start of this message, when our perspective is good and righteous, we enjoy the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Remember that? We had a whole series on that. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. It means when you're righteous, you bear good fruit, and it brings peace into your life. When you're obedient, even, to the Word of God, you have peace in your life. 
So when our perspective is good and righteous, we enjoy the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Remember our series from Hebrews 12, 11. However, when our perspective is bad or fleshly, we are riddled with fear. Fear. Because that's the domain. Remember, love and fear. The flesh's domain is fear, basically. When our perspective is bad, we are riddled with fear, among other things that are diametrically opposed to love. That's 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love. So if you're functioning in the flesh, you're going to be riddled with fear because that's all it knows. The practical side of this ungodly state is that we begin to make poor decisions. For example, and this is a point of review from two weeks ago, for example, you start making poor decisions. Why? Because your perspective is bad. You start striving for things. One of my favorite Christian songs of all time, 10th Avenue North, Why Are You Striving for Grace? This is the opening line. Have you ever strove for something out of fear? Love, maybe? Friendship? Acceptance? I just wrote a whole embarrassing blog this week about being best dressed. Right? Some of you are like, I still can't believe it myself. Look at that ridiculous tie you're wearing. I know, right? I don't care. I, in duo, put on Christ. I have one outfit now that I really care about. And it's putting him on. And nobody in this world is going to think I'm best dressed anymore. And I'm good with that. I prefer it, actually. Have you ever strove for something out of fear? Love, friendship, acceptance? Right perspective empowers us. Bad perspective weakens us. Well, since God doesn't love me enough or... I'll go have to seek love in all the wrong places. Since God didn't make me pretty enough, I guess I'll have to get acceptance some other way. God put me in a family that was broke, and I grew up in poverty, so now I've got to overachieve every chance I get to prove to the world that I'm somebody. Do you know what an insult that is to God? God says, you're wonderfully made. I made you exactly what I wanted to make you. Even with that big wart on your forehead. The one everyone makes fun of. I made you exactly what I wanted you to make you. What's wrong with the way I decided to make you? Well, nobody else likes me. So? So? What kind of perspective is that? It's called bad. And when you have that kind of perspective, you are weakened. The great example the Spirit's been using to drive this principle home up here on the board, of course it comes back to love. John 15, 17. This I command you, that you love one another. Well, how about this then? Upon that command, it's hard to love like this if you're afraid of rejection. Right? The command doesn't say, wait for it. Wait for it. Okay, they love you back. Okay, now pour out your love. It doesn't say that at all. It's actually a one-way thing. 
love one another. You love, I love you. You can choose to love me back because that's the command on your soul. But as far as it's up to me, I'm going to do the best to love you because that's what Jesus commands me to do. And I technically, other than some practical reasons, shouldn't hang my hat on you loving me back. And I certainly should be able to sleep at night if you choose not to love me back. But I'm never going to love you in the first place if I'm afraid of you not loving me back. If I'm afraid of rejection. But what if I throw myself out there and I'm all vulnerable with this person? Yeah, so? I try being naked and hung on a cross. How's that for vulnerable? And being spit on and having your beard ripped out. And people mocking you. And you're perfect. Because you're not perfect, by the way. Just to let you know. I kind of am. You're really not. If you're afraid of rejection, you can't love that way. Because the flesh is afraid of rejection. Christ wasn't. Christ knew he was going to be rejected. You should know you're going to be rejected. That shouldn't stop you. Can't love like that. Can't follow that command if you're afraid of being rejected. And when you get beyond all that fleshly stuff, you realize that there's true freedom and just being able to love other people. Who cares if they love you back? I'm free to love. I think I'm going to love. Because the, the other option sucks. Stinks. Sunday morning best. The other option stinks, doesn't it? If it's not love, what is it? Fill in the blank. I'd rather abide in love and be free. Instead of being controlled by the kingdom of darkness by fear, here's my advice to you. I know I'm not a Navy SEAL, so apologize. Be yourself. That's my advice. God made you that way. Stop apologizing. So you're weird. I only raise my hand to make you feel good because I'm not weird. I'm awesome. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Jeez, you guys are stiffs. You guys are like, I think he believes it. I think he really does. I think those superlatives went to his head, obviously. <laughs> hey, you want to hear a funny story? True story. Scott responds and says, I got seven in high school. <laughs> oh, my Lord, help me. I'm like, I think he missed the point. <laughs> Unbelievable, Scott. <laughs> Anyways, we got to talk about which one you got, though. I'm just kidding. Jeez. Anyways, be yourself. If it's, you know, it's inconsequential if the world likes you or not. That's the whole point. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they shower you. Ah, man, you're such a cool guy. Well, whatever. Be yourself. Never fear rejection, especially when you know you're just trying to love others unconditionally. Don't fear rejection. Just do as you're commanded. Love one another. That's your command. Now, once it gets beyond you into the realm of someone else, that's between them and the Lord. They may respond, they may not. That's not the point. But don't be in bondage to rejection. No freedom in that. When it comes to love versus fear, choose love and enjoy the peaceful fruit of righteousness because it's right to love. 
That's been the message from the Spirit throughout the past two series, inclusives of the one we are currently on. Go to Romans 12, 21. Romans 12, 21. Romans 12, 21. What about all this? What about being yourself? What about never fearing rejection? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's your attitude. Good begets good. You see evil, you overcome it with good. In other words, always love. Always do good up here on the board but overcome evil with good. This takes divine perspective to enact. This is diametrically opposed to the deepest desires of the flesh. Jesus said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Luke 6, 27. Remember, as a side note, just hearing is a gift from God for believers only. Overcome evil with good. That makes no sense whatsoever to the flesh. None. The flesh wants to compete. Remember, Teshuka. That's the sin nature, is to overpower, to rule. The last thing it's going to let you do is rule it. So this is what happens. That's the nature of the flesh. Romans 12, 21 again. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. To overcome implies activity, actually doing and or maintaining good in our lives. How do you overcome evil with good? You actually have to do stuff. You actually have to be somebody. You have to maintain love, which is good. As such, we've been pondering the notion of functional love. Go to Luke 17, 1. Luke 17, verse 1. So we've been pondering. Again, I told you there's a lot of moving parts this morning. I'm doing the best I can for you, but I'm pulling together about two months of lessons across two sizable series even, hours in each. So just pull it together. Again, we've been pondering the notion of functional love. Luke 17:1. he said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him who, through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent and forgive him. You going to get frustrated with some people sometimes? Absolutely. Is your flesh going to tempt you to drop the hockey gloves? Absolutely. But what did Jesus say? Forgive him. Up here on the board, Luke 17, 1-4, that is what functional love looks like. Operational word is functional. That is what functional love looks like. Not dysfunctional. Functional. There's a big difference. The flesh is great at dysfunctional love. I gave you an example a couple of weeks ago of a mechanic's advice to a truck owner. 
who never did any maintenance on his truck and was wondering why it was running so poorly after four years. The moral of the story is that maintenance is key. As the analogy went, we talked about functional love being like said maintenance and that love needs to be maintained between people. What was the command? Love one another. Why would he command it? Because it's a requirement. He designed us, God designed us a certain way to functionally love one another. Even, quote, sustain one another in a way. That love needs to be maintained between people. While God sees the heart, the world sees the choices we make. Especially when it comes to our love for others. So I call it the leaky bucket syndrome up here on the board. The leaky bucket syndrome. Love requires maintenance. We humans have, for lack of a better term, leaky buckets when it comes to love. The bucket can be filled up pretty quick, but over time it leaks out and needs more love placed into it. That's just the way God designed us. Can you imagine just for a moment in the, in the worst scenario possible if you literally knew for a fact that God stopped loving you right now? What would that be like tomorrow? You'd be like, uh, what about a week from here? How about a month later? You'd be in complete disarray. You have to know that God loves you each and every moment of each and every day, correct? Why? Because that's why He designed you. That's the way He designed you. When's the last time you said, you know what, God loves me, Jesus loves me because He used an instrument of righteousness to do something for your good? Maybe you had a need. Someone pulled through for you. Who did you give glory to? The Lord. That means that person as an instrument followed the command to love you and God got the glory. That's how this works. That's why we're called to love one another. Because God is glorified. Jesus said that's how, they, that's how the rest of the world is going to know that you're my disciples. That you love one another. And he was talking about everyone. Even unbelievers are in view in that point. At that point. I mean, <laughs> this is funny, right? What if we go down to the beach this afternoon, right? Right, right before it's time to do the baptism, we all get in like a fist fight. <laughs> My brother's a seal. How dare you? <laughs> what are the people going to be saying? About the baptism. People are crazy. They don't love one another. What are they even doing? Leaky bucket syndrome. If we agree to the point of the board, then Galatians 5.13 makes a lot of sense. Go to Galatians 5.13. Galatians 5.13. Functional love is a big part of God's plan in our lives. And don't make it some doctrinal, you know, thingy. Take it to heart. It's a practical thing. Galatians 5.13 For you are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. The flesh is in fear of everything. 
Got to get mine before it's too late. Got to make some bad decisions. Free to move around the cabin right now. Got to do for me. It's all about me, you see. That's not functional love at all. That's an abomination. You are called to freedom, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but do this instead. Through love, serve one another. That's called functional love. Through love, because that's what Jesus commanded, serve one another. In other words, up here on the board, you are free to love. That's what Galatians 5.13 states in a nutshell. You are free to love, to follow my commands. You couldn't even do it before. You were still in bondage. I rescued you, right? I, pulled, I plucked you out of bondage. Now you're outside of the slave market, and now you're free. To what? To follow my commands. To love. This is what I command you to do. Love one another. You're free to love. Don't take that freedom and turn it into an opportunity for the flesh. That's what Paul's saying. But through love, serve one another. God wants us not just to love in a way that he knows it, but to love others so that they know it. That's what functional love looks like. can't tell you how many times I've heard stories about, you know, people with, like, daddy issues, and, you know, they, they recount times where their father would be like, but I loved you. Yeah, but, Dad, you never told me. But I loved you. Didn't you know I loved you? Yeah, but you never showed me. You were too busy, whatever. Jesus wants others to know that they're loved. He wants us to be vessels of mercy, instruments of righteousness to his glory, and follow his command to love others. That's what the Bible tells us. Don't just say it to God. Oh, you know, God, you know I love my, my so-and-so or my so-and-so. Well, then they should know it. No, but they don't. You actually have to go over there and say, I love you. Do something, anything. Prove it once in a while. Show them you love them. Take a risk. The last person I told I loved, they, they, they yelled at me. So? They're still trying to get over your ridiculousness, maybe. Maybe they're weak. Maybe you gave them reason to stumble. Maybe they're weak and they don't know how to forgive yet. Keep going back. What did Jesus do? What does Jesus do in your life? The Bible says God's faithfulness is new every morning, renewed every morning. His compassion is love and kindness. Do you deserve that every morning? Do you know how gross you were yesterday alone? People are like, how does he know about that? I really don't know. Thank God. Because then I would stumble. Because you people are sick. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying about this? He doesn't, want you just, he doesn't want you just to think it's okay that he knows that you love others. He wants you actually to follow the command. In a practical sense. In such a way that they know it. One of the quickest ways to do that is to forgive someone. When someone knows that they've wronged you and you haven't forgiven them, the love thing's kind of out on the edge, isn't it? But if they know that you've forgiven them, they know that love has 
transcended the situation. That maybe just maybe you really do love them. And maybe just maybe you do have Christ's heart, who's the ultimate forgiver. Amen? You are free to love. God wants you to show it to others. After all, in the grandest scheme, on the largest stage, love is what attracts an unbeliever to our Savior. Love is what attracts an unbeliever to our Savior. If we extrapolate the point on the board, broadening the message up here on the board, God's love is so great that He wants to save you. That is the message of the gospel. Oh, yeah, you are a sinner, and you need to repent. But know this. God's love is so great that He wants to save you from that situation. That's the message of the gospel. If that's not the centerpiece of your evangelizing, you're missing the point still. Our end goal is to show others Christ, His precious love. And I'm pretty much out of time. Um, Yeah, I think I'm going to end there. Our end goal is to show others Christ, His precious love. Remember functional love uh, this afternoon. Think about even the love that's going to be evidenced at Colt State Park when we, as a congregation, share in the beauty of individuals who are publicly proclaiming their faith in Jesus Christ. Think about the love that will be evidenced in that moment. That's what functional love looks like. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this privilege, this fantastic opportunity to study a word, to realize what functional love even looks like, Father. Thank you for your patience in teaching us, and thank you for each and every instrument of righteousness that you've placed in our lives as individuals along the way. May we reflect on those individuals, understanding that it was to your glory that they enacted the way they did or enacted the things that they did. Father, And may we use them as prototypes in our own lives. Father, we just ask your blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world. Father, it needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Amen.